So I'll ask God to help us as we come to his word. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, I pray that you would use me in my weakness to rightly teach and apply your word. Please transform us by it so that we might live lives that are honouring to our Lord and Saviour Jesus. In his name we pray this. Amen. Uh, Have you ever been rescued? I remember a time I needed to be rescued during a family holiday to Queensland when we were kids. My brother and I were swimming in the beach when suddenly I realised I was about out a bit too far. The current seemed a bit too hard to swim against and I started to freak out. So I yelled at my brother, who was a couple of years older than I am, uh, to come and rescue me. He looked at me from a distance Then he just turned around and started walking away in the other direction from the shore. Now, in that moment, I thought, you heartless monster, um, I'm drowning here and you just walk off. But you see, in his head, in that moment, he thought, I've got to help Chris, but I also don't want to get stuck like he is out there, so I'm going to get an adult, I'm going to get dad. And that's what I saw him do. He got to the sand. He ran to Dad. Dad jumped in the beach. He swam out to me. He pulled me out and took me safely to shore. And I remember my brother proudly telling the whole family, kind of after that incident, how he had followed his PE teacher's advice to a T, where you don't try and be a hero if someone's drowning. You need to think about their well-being and you need to think about your well-being. And there's a similar message going on in the passage today, but the topic is much more serious than even uh, water safety, drowning. God is talking to us about the seriousness of salvation. He's talking to us about the desperate need uh, that we all have to be rescued by Jesus from the judgment of God that our sin and our rebellion deserve. God is saying in this passage, I think, that we can't be apathetic when it comes to either the salvation of others or the salvation of ourselves. We actually need to be a bit like my brother, who cared about both my well-being and his own. We need to care about the salvation of others. We need to care about the salvation of ourselves. And so that's how I've broken up our text tonight, their salvation my salvation, or our salvation. So first, God wants us to wrestle with the seriousness of their salvation, of those who don't yet know Jesus. He wants us to kind of care enough about their spiritual peril that we would sacrifice our rights, our comforts, our cultural norms to bring the gospel to them. And that's what you see at the start of this passage, isn't it? Paul is so concerned about the salvation of the world around him, that he speaks of becoming like a slave in service to them. Look at verse 1. Although I am free from, although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. Uh, every time I pop over to my neighbor's house, I can't help but notice this little message she's got under the doorbell that reads something like no salespeople, no uh, door knockers, and no religious groups. And I often wonder whether I'm partly fitting into the third one. 
But it's kind of the case, isn't it? None of us like the kind of image, that picture of the pushy, crafty salesman that just sort of wants to weevil his way in to get something out of you. When Paul speaks about becoming like a slave to people in order to win people, is he just another crafty salesman? Uh, The kind of person who would come to your front door, be interested in the flowers in your front garden, but ultimately just wants something out of you for selfish gain. Why does he want to win people? Does he want their money? Does he earn a commission on every person that he wins? Is he just some weird cult leader who wants a bunch of disciples to follow and love him? See, when Paul says his goal is to win more people, he is not speaking about getting something out of the Corinthians, but giving something to them. See, win in this passage is synonymous with the word save in verse 22. Paul's desire is that by sharing the message of Jesus, people might be one for Jesus. That is, that they might come to faith in him, find forgiveness for their sin, which would have otherwise placed them under the holy judgment of God. Paul is not like a crafty salesman here. He's a compassionate preacher of the gospel who actually rightly has a sense of urgency about the spiritual needs of people. He's not out to get for himself, but to give of himself in order to save as many as he can with the message of Jesus. And that's what you see here, isn't it? We see Paul doing what he can, or rather kind of being what he can, in order to see all kinds of people come to be saved. The first group he speaks about are the Jews. Look at verse 20, to the Jews I became like a Jew, to those under the law, uh, to win Jews, to those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. It's like Paul is saying, look, I know I'm not justified by keeping the Old Testament law, I'm justified through faith in Christ. I know I don't have to eat certain foods and keep certain rituals when I come into Jewish communities But because I love them, because I don't want to immediately turn them off through my Christian freedoms, I'm actually happy to become a slave to them. I'm okay with keeping their feasts and eating their food. But it's not just to those with the law that Paul was flexible. It's to those without the law too, isn't it? You see that in verse 21. To those who are without the law, like one without the law though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. You see, when mixing with non-Jewish people, Gentiles in the Roman Empire, Paul adapted to some of their cultural behaviours and interests in order to build a connection with them and bring the gospel to them. Now, you'll notice that qualification there that Paul adds that he did not become utterly lawless, He was still under God's law, which he defines as Christ's law. That is, he did not transgress the way of life that Jesus called him to, bound up in the scriptures. He didn't join the pagans in things like idolatry and sexual promiscuity, which were quite common in the Roman Empire. But where he could, he adapted to the Gentiles around him. He embraced aspects of their culture and their way of life. And I think you actually see this in the book of Acts with Paul, particularly in chapter six, uh, 17 when he's in Athens. 
Uh, He enters into the world, you might remember, of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, engaging with them in their love of philosophy and religion, and then kind of masterfully all bringing it to the Lord Jesus and the gospel. To the Jew, he became like a Jew. To the Gentile, he became like a Gentile. And we see to the weak, he became like one who was weak. You see that in verse 22. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. Uh, Here Paul takes his readers back to chapter 8, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, in which he reminded them that there were some in the church whose consciences were still not entirely formed by the scriptures. They had weak consciences in that sense. See, coming out of paganism, they still thought that eating meat sacrificed to idols uh, would compromise them spiritually somehow. They had not yet fully understand that idols were nothing and that Christians were free to eat such meats. But Paul is saying here, as he did back in chapter 8, that the souls of those weak believers actually matter to him. So it's like he's thinking, it would be awful if my thoughtless, loveless actions in front of these believers somehow led them to become disillusioned with their new faith, to walk away from it before they even had a chance to mature in it. And that's why Paul said back in chapter 8, verse 3, 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat again, so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Because Paul takes people's salvation seriously, he's kind of willing to do what it takes in the confines of his faith in Christ to bring them the life-saving message of the gospel. Though I am a slave to no one, I made myself a slave to everyone. And he says the same thing at the end of that section too, doesn't he? Verses 22 and 23. I've become all things to all people so that I, by every possible means, might save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. See, Paul became all things to all types of people so that by all possible means, some of them might be saved. Some of you might know the famous 19th century missionary to China, Hudson Taylor. Uh, He founded the China Inland Mission, and for 51 years he gave his life to telling Chinese people about the message of salvation that comes through Jesus. But what was unique about Hudson Taylor was his willingness to kind of break with the missionary practice of other Europeans of his time instead of living in the missionary compounds in designated coastal cities in China, he went instead inland and lived among Chinese people. Instead of living like an Englishman in China, he and his team lived like the Chinese. He embraced Chinese food, Chinese clothing, even took on a Chinese hairstyle, which I assume is under the cap. Uh, But this would have been scandalous in his day among other Europeans. But despite that, he knew that doing all of those things was actually just simply following the pattern that Paul lays down here, which is why he actually wrote these words, uh, let us in everything not sinful become like the Chinese, that by all means we might save some. 
See, Taylor wanted there to be no confusion about his agenda. He was not coming to bring Western culture, but a saving gospel. And in God's kindness, the missionary zeal, the thoughtfulness of Hudson Taylor and his team resulted in thousands of conversions and an explosion of mission activity within that nation that we still see the fruits of today. But you see, it's not just to the missionaries like Hudson Taylor that this passage speaks to. It's actually calling regular Christians, Christians like the Corinthians, Christians like you and I, uh, to follow in Paul's example. And we know this because Paul actually says that directly at the end of chapter 10. He says, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, the groups that he's already listed in our passage tonight, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. See, Paul was simply following in the footsteps of Christ, who first served us by becoming like us in order to die for us at the cross. So what would it look like for us to imitate the Christ-like practice of Paul here in this passage? I have three suggestions. The first uh, is to cultivate a heart of compassion. Now, what I mean is that we actually need to take to heart the real spiritual danger that people are in around us. Uh, Like Paul, we actually need to care about lost people. Uh, Maybe you've heard of the famous um, magician and outspoken atheist, Pendulet. He's one half of the Penantella duo. A number of years ago, he recorded a YouTube video of himself talking about an interaction that he had with an audience member following a show. And the audience member happened to be a Christian man. Uh, The Christian man came up to him. He uh, praised him for a great show that he had done. They had a good chat. And then towards the end of the conversation, the Christian man gave Penn a pocket-sized Bible. And you could tell that this Christian guy actually cared about Penn and his salvation in the way that Penn himself describes that interaction. He said of this guy in the YouTube video, he knew I was an atheist, but he wasn't defensive. He looked me in the eyes and he was truly complimentary, not empty flattery. He was really kind and not insane. Penn then went on to say how much he respected this man for sharing his faith and giving him the Bible. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, that is, share their faith. I don't respect that at all. How much do you have to, how much do you have to hate someone? to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that the truck was bearing down on you, well, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. I've always been struck by this video that I found a number of years ago, and I, I just feel like they are quite cutting words, aren't they? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I suspect most of us don't actually like to think that there's hatred in our hearts, but maybe if we're honest, maybe we're prepared to own up to at least a level of apathy. 
Now, I think we all struggle in this area, myself included, and it's easy to actually just feel guilty. Uh, But we need to know that God is gracious and patient with us in our struggles, even in our struggle to share Christ. But I think God's word in passages like this does serve as a bit of a wake-up call against the apathy that we so easily have as Christians. See, God wants us to care about the fact that many people in our uni course, our street, our suburb, will one day have to face his judgment if they do not call on Jesus' name. And and let me say, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, uh, but I actually want you to hear this, that we genuinely care about you. We care about your eternal well-being and we would love to share Christ with you. Uh, we actually need to cultivate a heart that, uh, a heart like Paul, who in Romans chapter 9 speaks of having great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for those who don't yet know Christ. Uh, we need to cultivate compassion. But second, we need to actually make ourselves known to the lost. See, how can we contextualize the gospel? build relationships without taking the time to actually know people who are not Christian. See, one of the challenges I think that many of us find with a passage like this in applying it is that we actually just don't know that many people who aren't Christians at a deeper level. Not true for everyone, true for some. Uh, But I was struck by a survey that was done by the National Church Life Survey Group last year, which showed kind of two interesting pieces of data on this front. The first was that three in 10 Australians, not that you can maybe read all of that, uh, the three in 10 Australians would, would attend a Christmas service or another significant service if they were invited by a close uh, friend or family member. But the survey also showed that another three in 10 Australians simply do not have a close friend or family member who's a Christian or who goes to church. See, what this tells me is that more people than I thought would actually perhaps go to an event if I asked them. They might go to the Christmas carols this year where the Gospels preach. But it also told me that there are many other Aussies who just simply don't know a Christian. You see, before we can be all things to all people, we actually need to be known by some of those people. We need to go to that random birthday invitation from a class uni mate that we actually don't know that well. We need to stick around and chat for a bit at school drop-off. We need to engage maybe a bit more in the chit-chat over the fence. We actually need to be willing to know people and build relationships if we hope to one day bring the gospel to them in our conversations. But the third uh, is that Paul shows us in this text uh, is that we need to be flexible while remaining faithful. And it's kind of important to think about it like that because I think some of us, in order to share Christ, perhaps can end up being more on the flexible but not faithful side of things. You see, going out and getting drunk with your workmates on Saturday night in order to enter into their world, connect with them, might seem flexible, but it's not faithful. Others of us can be more inclined to be kind of faithful, but not thinking too much about the way we're flexible. 
And see, the faithful but inflexible believer is kind of more inclined to wait for someone to come into their world, perhaps church, rather than thinking about the way they go into the world of someone who's not a Christian. I suspect maybe we all tend towards one side of that equation. Uh, When I was doing footy chaplaincy a number of years ago, I noticed in myself a bit of my own tendency to be faithful without being entirely thoughtful about the way I'm flexible among those people. That is, I was hyper aware of my need to remain faithful to Jesus in a very secular context. I would pray on the way to training that God help me not to compromise the message if I get an opportunity to speak about Jesus. Help me not go along with behaviors that are clearly unhelpful and ungodly. But so I actually perhaps didn't pray enough. God help me to be more flexible. Help me to think of ways that I can engage with the players, know more about the local footy comp generally, know what these guys like and dislike as people, help to give me energy and to free up my schedule and boldness to go to some of their social events. See, Paul is helping us to see the need to be flexible while remaining faithful so that we can actually connect with people and bring them the true message of Jesus. Now, I suspect some of you might struggle to know where the line between faithful and flexible actually is. And I'd just say, really, the only way to find that out is to know more and more of the law of Christ, to use Paul's language, the Bible. And that's why coming to church is important. That's why growth group is important. Uh, That is why devotions, daily devotions, are crucial because that will all help you know what it looks like to be faithful in your daily life so that you know how to rightly be flexible. But it's not just the salvation of other people God is wanting uh, wanting us to take seriously here. It's our own salvation. And that's uh, the second and final point. Uh, Many of you will uh, will be familiar with the famous evangelist Billy Graham. Uh, Throughout much of the 20th century, Billy Graham went from country to country, city to city, preaching the gospel to packed stadiums with thousands of people. And in fact, Billy Graham's 1959 appearance in Melbourne still holds the record for the largest crowd at the MCG, which is 143,000. But you may be less familiar with Charles Templeton, who was Billy Graham's co-preacher in his early years uh, on those evangelistic tours. Uh, Sadly, in the late 50s, Charles Templeton turned his back on the same gospel that uh, he had proclaimed to thousands of others for a number of years beforehand. Uh, Many years later, Lee Strobel, the Christian author, interviewed Templeton for uh, Strobel's new book, The Case for Christ. In that book, Strobel speaks about meeting Templeton a couple of years before he died, and asking him what he thought about Jesus at that later point in his life. Strobel records the conversation like this. In my view, Templeton declared, Jesus is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said, as his voice began to crack, I miss him. 
With that, tears flooded down his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed and wiped a tear away. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly, but adamantly, he insisted enough of that. I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly sad. See, on the one hand, there's almost like this kind of residual grief about losing Jesus, and on the other hand, a resolute commitment to the decision that he made those years ago. Enough of that. Templeton started his adult life preaching about Jesus. For all accounts, he ended it rejecting him. And this story reminds us that it's not so much how you start out in the Christian life, but how you finish. Will you still be loving Jesus and the salvation that he offers you at the end of your life? And that's important for a lot of you because you're quite young still. It's a lot of living to go, presumably. Or will you find yourself like Charles Templeton, alienated from Jesus and his promise of salvation? It is not so much how you start as a Christian, but how you finish. See, the Christian life is like a race that you need to keep going at in order to glory in the wonderful prize of salvation that Christ has won for you. And that's what Paul says in these final verses. Take your salvation seriously. I need to take my salvation seriously. Verse 24, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives a prize, run in such a way to win the prize? Uh, The Corinthians would have been very familiar with the world of athletics, ancient events like the Isthmian, I can never say this properly, Isthmian Games. It's right near Corinth. Um, Isthmian Isthmian Games and the Olympic Games. I can see why we went with the Olympic Games. And and so Paul takes the image of the sporting arena and uses it as a metaphor for the Christian life. But it's important to know what Paul's not saying here. He isn't saying that as Christians we are competitors with one another, like the most holiest person in Bundy gets to heaven, the rest of us miss out. He's not saying that. We know from the book of Revelation that heaven's actually filled with a multitude of people from every tribe, nation, language, and they can't be counted, it says in Revelation 7. What Paul is saying here is that we need to have the kind of determination to finish the race to enjoy the prize that the runner in that stadium does. We need to think, I'm running to finish. I'm not going to let go of Jesus because I want to be with him in his kingdom and enjoy the prize of his salvation to the full. But how do we make it to the end and not drop out along the way? Well, Paul says this requires a level of thoughtfulness in your Christian life. Like an athlete, the Christian has to think about what's going to sustain them in their faith. What will help keep you going and not lose heart? Verse 25, Paul says, Now everyone who competes, 
exercises self-control and everything. They do it to receive a uh, they do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Uh, did you know that the winners in the ancient Isthmian Games, which was held in Corinth or just outside Corinth every two years, received a crown made of salary. Uh, I found that hilarious in my preparation of this passage. Uh, these ancient runners, boxers, athletes, they got the wonderful privilege of wearing a crown made of salary. See, Paul's helping us to see almost the laughable difference between the prize of the athlete and the prize of the Christian who perseveres. One can be used in tonight's salad. The other is an eternity with the living God in the new heavens and earth. Which would you rather win? Keep your eyes on the prize of your salvation, says Paul. Keep doing what will sustain you to keep going, verse 26. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or boxes one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body. I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. See, Paul didn't want to end up like Charles Templeton. He didn't want to find himself as one who would preach the saving message to others, yet ultimately failed to believe that message himself, all because he stopped taking his own health, taking the health of his own faith seriously. And God wants that for us too. God doesn't want you to just begin trusting Jesus, but we all rejoice when that happens. He actually wants you to finish by trusting Jesus. So how do we apply Paul's words about the seriousness of our own salvation as we come to a close? I'm just going to leave you with three points. Actually have a humble view of yourself as a Christian. See, every smart athlete takes the idea of being disqualified very seriously. You and I all need to say, I'm not as strong as I think I am. I'm not as able to resist temptation as I think I am. I could possibly be a Charles Templeton and wander away from God if I stop taking my faith in Jesus and my salvation seriously. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, not to think of yourself, didn't put that one on, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, but to think of yourself with sober judgment. And that's what we actually see, I think, coming from Paul in these final verses. Paul wouldn't talk about the risk of being disqualified if he didn't believe it was a risk to him that it could happen. We likewise need to think that if we're not careful, we could drift into wrong theology. We could fall into catastrophic sin that ruins us. We could succumb to the pressures of the world around us. We actually need a humble view of ourselves so that we will see our need for God and be disciplined in our faith, which is the second point. Uh, The undisciplined athlete, the one who kind of ignores his fitness, sits on the couch eating KFC, uh, he doesn't make it often to the finish line, doesn't make it there in good form at least. Uh, But the disciplined athlete knows that certain things are necessary to make it to the end. Certain training, habits, self-control. And it's the same for us. If you care about your salvation... If you want to last for the long haul in your Christian life, you also need to cultivate certain disciplines and habits that will sustain you. 
Uh, there are many to mention. Here's just a couple. The disciplined Christian who cares about their salvation says church is important. And the growth group I go to, that's important. If I will last for the long haul, I need the regular support of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to sit under and learn from the teaching of God's word. The disciplined Christian says prayer is important. If I want to last for the long haul, I need to ask for God's help. The disciplined Christian says daily Bible reading is important. If I want to last for the long haul, I need God's word. I need to know what it makes of the life around me, of the world around me, what hope it gives me in Jesus, what wisdom it offers me in the complexities of my life. But I'd say that the disciplined Christian also recognises that we are in a marathon, not a sprint. Now, trying to sprint your way through a marathon will often just wear you out completely before the end, or you'll either collapse and just want to throw in the towel, uh, or you'll just spend much of the race struggling, limping, gasping for breath. See, sometimes being disciplined in the Christian life requires us to slow down, catch our breath, and remember that we are finite and weak. Now, there is a limit on how many good things you can do. There is a limit on how many people you can help. Now, to go beyond that limit often isn't good for you or for anyone else. I'm learning this right now. now we actually need to remember the wisdom of my brother's PE teacher. Don't try and be a hero when it comes to people who are in need of rescue. Uh, people already have a hero, and his name is Jesus. And you see, Jesus wants you to rest when you actually need to. He wants you to talk when you need to. He wants you to find renewed encouragement in him when you need to. Jesus wants you to last the whole way, not to burn out either in your service to him or worse still, in your faith in him. Finally, as we come to a close, keep your eyes on the prize. Uh, Paul repeatedly calls us to do that in this final section. Twice he speaks of the prize the athlete receives. Twice he speaks of the crown. And Jesus has assured us that as we trust in him, we too are running towards a sure and certain prize, a prize that he has won for us, the prize of eternal life with the living God. Uh, in Philippians 3, God tells us not to set our mind on earthly things, but to remember that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there. We run the Christian life with heaven in view. We look forward to that glorious day uh, when our saviour will welcome us into his eternal kingdom that will last forever and ever free from all the grief, the pain, the injustice, the anxiety, all the fear that are often the hallmarks of the world we live in. I'll just finish with the words of the 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards, which I'm sure I'm probably quoted ten times now to you guys. Uh, but he said this of himself in his prayer, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Lord, help us to remember that there is eternal judgment and eternal life, heaven and hell. Help us keep our eyes on the prize of heaven, which Jesus has won for us by his death and resurrection. Help us to so long for that day 
that we will keep holding on to Jesus every day. See, it's only as we kind of keep the reality of eternity before us that we're going to be like Paul in this passage, someone who takes the salvation of others seriously and someone who takes seriously his own salvation. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, please apply what we have read in your word to our hearts tonight. Please help us to be people who are serious and concerned for the salvation of others as well as ourselves. Thank you that we do have such a good saviour in Jesus. Thank you that he willingly laid down his life so that sinners like us could be forgiven and enjoy life with you forever. Amen.